We have two Bible verses today, or two passages. First one can be found um, in Proverbs, Proverbs 11, on page 644 of the Bibles in your pew. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The second passage can be found on page 1215, taken from James 4. But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, everyone. It's really good to be with you. So, for the next few months, the sermon series is going to be all about sin. I'm wondering how we're all feeling about that. Maybe some of us feel a sense of anxiety as we wonder what's going to be brought up. Perhaps some of us don't like it because we think it's all about being judged and it's all about judgment. Perhaps some of us thought it would be easier just to avoid the topic altogether and skip church this morning. Well, however it is we're feeling, God already knows. And he says, come. There's no need to be afraid. There's no need to hide. Today we're looking at the sin of pride, but as we do so, let's remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's remember that God is gracious and compassionate, that he longs only for our highest good, and that there isn't anything that we can ever do that can make him love us any more or any less. May these truths convict our hearts and provide us with comfort and reassurance as we look at sin these next few weeks. Before we go on to pride, I'd like to encourage us by sharing a few reasons why it's good to be looking at sin. Whilst the gospel is so much more than just sin management, there's a lot we can gain from examining ourselves. The purpose of having a sermon series on sin isn't to make us all feel bad, but it's because being disciples of Jesus means we're on a spiritual journey where we are being broken, molded, healed, and restored, so ultimately we can become more like Jesus. We are being changed from glory to glory. Now, whilst examining ourselves can be uncomfortable, when we do so in light of God's grace and compassion, we find the safety to take a clear look at ourselves without condemnation. And that's both condemnation from God, but also condemnation from ourselves, because often we can be far harder on ourselves than God is on us. And the reason why this is so important is because when our sin is met with such harsh condemnation, 
we tend to hide. We avoid the pain by keeping our sin out of sight and out of mind. But the problem with that is when we're unwilling to acknowledge our sin and deal with it, it's a lot harder for us to become more like Jesus. But listen to what David Benner says. He says that when we know we are loved and accepted as we are, even the seemingly unacceptable parts of ourselves can be brought into our awareness where it can be softened and healed by the love of God. When we know we are loved and accepted as we are, even the seemingly unacceptable parts of ourselves can be brought into our awareness where it can be softened and healed by the love of God. So unless we're willing to acknowledge our brokenness at its deepest level, we're unlikely to experience the healing that we need. But in God's loving presence, we can bring our wounds into our awareness so they can be healed by him. We don't need to hide, but we can say just as David did, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So that's one reason. By examining sin in our lives, there is healing. God wants to make us more like Jesus, and he can mend the broken parts of us and make them whole again if we're willing to bring the broken parts to him. As Max Lucado says, God loves you just the way you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. Another reason why it's good to be looking at sin is because we cannot understand the good news without the bad news. The acknowledgement of sin's reality in our lives helps us to have a deeper experience of God's grace. If we didn't acknowledge our struggle with sin, we wouldn't know the depth of our need for grace. It's only by bringing the darkest parts of our lives into the light of God's loving presence that we can fully experience the immeasurably Uh, the the immeasurably abundant grace of the Father. It's when we acknowledge our deepest flaws and failures before him that we can experience more fully the heart of Jesus as he says, come, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brennan Manning says this, to live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark, In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. So over these next few weeks, as we look at sin, Jesus bids us to come to him, and he invites us to know more of his heart. Now, as we look at pride, which is the first of the seven deadly sins, uh, I want to use these headings. The danger and deception of pride, what pride looks like, and pride's remedy. So let's begin with the danger and deception of pride. In his book, The City of God, St. Augustine refers to pride as the beginning of sin, the beginning of sin. And he describes it as having the craving for undue exaltation. We also find in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity that he refers to pride as the complete anti-God state of mind. And he says that it was through pride that the devil became the devil. So the first reason why pride is dangerous is because scripture shows us that pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. Let's look at a few examples. 
In Isaiah 14, we are told about Satan's fall from heaven as he tried to take God's throne. It says in verses 12 to 15, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who, you who, laid, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the top of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And so it was because of Satan's pride, his craving for undue exaltation, that caused him to fall. Then we have the temptation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3-5. Satan, appearing as a serpent, says to Eve regarding eating the fruit, You will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verses 6 to 7. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And then what happens? They felt shame for the first time. They hide from God, Adam blames Eve, the ground becomes cursed, the relationship they had with God, with each other, and with creation are broken. Notice the pattern here. Satan, in wanting to take God's throne, says, I will make myself like the Most High. And then when tempting Eve, he says, you will be like God. You can see how the motives from both these examples are driven by pride. Thomas A. Tarrant says it was pride that caused Lucifer, that Satan, to be cast out of heaven, and Adam and Eve to be cast out of Eden, and it is pride that will be our undoing if we tolerate it in our lives. And so pride is a craving for undue exaltation, where there's a desire to make much of ourselves rather than make much of God, but ultimately it leads to a fall. As it says in Matthew 23, 12, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Another reason why pride is so dangerous is because pride is the root behind the denial of God's existence. It says in Psalm 10, 4, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 24, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I don't think it's hard to see how this is today. It's easy for a person who thinks that they already have everything that they might possibly need to believe they don't need God. Because the only thing that's needed for someone to know Jesus and to live in his love is need. For someone to simply acknowledge that they can't do it on their own. So for a person who believes they are self-sufficient and who loves their independence because they think they already have everything they need, they think too highly of themselves because they do not know their need for God. That's often how undue exaltation looks today, thinking, I've got it all, so I don't need God. A denial of God's existence. But how does this apply for us as Christians? 
Well, in our individualistic, self-sufficient society today, even as Christians, we too can easily fall into the trap of wanting to be independent instead of being dependent on God. And when we become self-reliant, several things can happen. One is that we end up trying to make ourselves like God, just like Satan and Adam and Eve did, because every time we choose to depend on ourselves instead of God, we are effectively saying to God, I don't need you, I got this. And in doing that, we start acting as if we're God because we've chosen to do things our own way. We become the ones who are trying to take God's throne as we make ourselves the Lord of our own lives. Because when we do the things we want in our way, ultimately we only end up building our own kingdom. The other thing that happens when we hold on to our independence and self-sufficiency is we end up living our lives as if there were no God. We end up living our lives as if there were no God, which is what practical atheism is. Though we profess to be believers, our lives don't show it. And so even though we may not deny God's existence like the atheist does, it's possible that the way we're living already does that. And finally, very simply, pride is dangerous because we cannot have a close relationship with God if he is opposed to us. Both James 4.6 and 1 Peter 5.5 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Psalm 101.5, whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. God doesn't tolerate pride, but he opposes it. So whenever we're prideful, we're setting ourselves in opposition against God. A sobering thought. What this means is if we want a close relationship with God, a proud heart is something we need to keep in check. And though it's true that all sin hinders our relationship with God, there's something about pride which God detests. And there are specific uh, scriptures about pride because pride is the only sin that seeks to elevate the sinner above God. So pride is dangerous because it comes before a fall. It can create in us an attitude of self-sufficiency where we try to become like God. It can cause us to deny God in the way we live, and it gets in the way of our intimacy with Jesus. However, pride isn't just dangerous. It can also be incredibly deceptive. Galatians 6.3 says, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Going back to me, Christianity, C.S. Lewis continues saying, there is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. Our pride is something that is often very hard to spot. It causes us to get our own faults at a distance, but the faults of others up close. A prideful person highlights the faults and failures of others whilst often remaining oblivious to the faults and failures of their own. And they tend to do this because it makes them feel better about themselves when they point out the flaws in others, since the root of pride often comes from a low self-esteem and a a low sense of self-worth. Pride can be used as a tool to mask our insecurities, and often we mask things so well that we even end up deceiving ourselves. In fact, the deception of pride is something that 
can be confirmed with a neuroscience where it can be understood as unconscious emotion. And if you're interested, uh, you can listen to The Seven Deadly Psychologies on the BBC. Uh, but we're going to move on to our next point, what pride looks like. If pride had a voice, the one thing that it might say is, look at me. I'm kind of a big deal. A prideful person may think themselves indispensable and how everyone is privileged to have them be involved. Pride can be expressed as arrogance, self-importance, being puffed up, having an inflated sense of superiority and even narcissism in extreme cases. It can cause a person to be overly critical and fault-finding in others, blame problems on other people, and refuse to admit when they are wrong. If you want to know how prideful you are, consider some of these questions. How do you react when you're being criticized or corrected by others? Do you become defensive or make excuses? How do you handle being wrong? Are you easily offended and hurt when someone patronizes you or puts you down? How much do you dislike it when someone doesn't take notice of you? How annoyed do you get when someone shows off? How much do you worry about what other people think of you? How much do you crave attention, approval, and praise? Though it's clear that pride can take many forms, ultimately, it's a, an attitude of the heart, which goes back to having an unhealthy focus on the self. It's being self-absorbed, and it's all about me, myself, and I. There are three particular ways pride can appear that I'd like to focus on more closely. One is that pride can be expressed as a display of power. Pride can be expressed as a display of power. And this is because pride is something that's competitive by nature. For those of you who've watched the TV show, World's Strongest Men, you may have heard about the feud between the two winners, Eddie Hall and Thor Bjornsson. This is how the story was uh, reported on TalkSport. It says, in their rivalry, uh, it says their rivalry went to a new level in 2020 when Thor broke Hall's deadlift record of 500 kilograms, which he set in 2016. The mountain lifted 501 kilograms in his home gym and took the world record away from him. But Hall contested that it should not have stood because it was not done in a competitive environment. Thor responded to, challenges, uh, to challenging his long-standing rival to a boxing match, which he accepted. You can see how that escalated rather quickly. Because Thor wanted to prove himself more powerful, he films himself lifting just one kilogram heavier than Eddie. Eddie says it doesn't count, and the next thing we know is that Thor challenges him to a boxing match. Over the next year, the two strong men trained intensively as boxers. Both lost about 50 kilograms in weight in preparation for the fight. And these are big men, usually weighing about 200 kilograms. In the run-up to the fight, both posted videos online, trash-talking the other person and expressing how they couldn't wait to knock each other out. Two big men with big egos. You can see the extent to how far they'd go 
in their desire to outdo each other, to exert their dominance, to display their power. Pride is competitive, and our pride is always competing against the pride of others. People might display the power by showing off, by bragging or flexing, as some people say nowadays. We only need to look at social media to see, that, uh, to see this, where we'll always find someone more good-looking, more successful, smarter, richer, and more popular than us. And whenever we compete against others in this way, we stop being content with what we have, even if we have much. When we're constantly measuring ourselves against others, we can never be truly satisfied. Instead, we only become self-absorbed with how we look, our success, our finances, how much we have, how much we know, and so on. Pride is always going to demand more. Always. Being good at something isn't enough because pride wants to say to someone else, I'm better than you. Having a lot of things isn't enough because pride wants to have more than others. It's not just about having stuff. It's, ha- it's about having more things than other people. And this is because pride isn't just about trying to elevate ourselves above God. It's also elevating ourselves above people. So are there any ways that we may be displaying our own power? How might we be trying to assert our dominance or outdo others in our own lives? How might we be trying to elevate and exalt ourselves. Another way pride can be expressed is as self-righteousness. One way this can look in church is when a person looks down on someone else who might not be as spiritual or committed as they are, and they become proud of being a good Christian, whatever that means. Consider the parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. One thing this parable teaches is that we can even become prideful over the victory of sin in our own lives. Because if we think we're better than others, because we're not struggling with the same sins that they are, that's pride too. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity. That is, by pride. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you become chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up within you the dictatorship of pride. So are there any areas in our lives where we feel a sense of moral superiority? Is it possible that there are times when we, when we can be self-righteous too? And finally, pride can look like having an inflated self-evaluation an inflated self-evaluation. In Romans uh, 3.13, it says, don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. This has to do with having an accurate perception of who we are. 
It's about having a realistic evaluation of ourselves and not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Part of having an inflated self-evaluation comes from looking at our achievements, success, and all the things we have and done without considering our privileges or opportunities in life or the people who've helped us along the way. The person with an inflated self-evaluation says, look at me, how brilliant I am. However, when we realize that it's by God's grace that we are what we are, and that any goodness we have comes sheerly by the grace of God, we should be humbled. When we realize that every good gift comes from God, we learn we have no right to boast. 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 7 says this, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, Why do you boast as though you did not? Everything we have is a gift from God. Every advantage, every ability, every talent, every possession, every good trait of our character, they all come from him. So when we evaluate ourselves in light of what God has given and done for us, when we understand this, we should be humbled. And rather than thinking about how brilliant we are, we are to remember that it's all by grace. Because when we set our minds upon God's grace and we remember that it's by grace that we are what we are, that it's by grace that we're saved and not by anything that we've done, we stop saying, look at me. But we say, look at God. Look at God. When we remind ourselves that it was God who gave us the faith to believe in the first place from the very moment that we first came to know him and that he's the one who made our faith last to the end, that's when we remember that he is the one who is worthy of it all. I really like the image painted in Revelation chapter 4 where the 24 elders, uh, they fall down before God, worshipping him as he sat on the throne. And then they laid down their crowns before him, saying, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The crowns they cast down represent their works, their service to the Lord. And as they cast them down, it's as if they're saying, Why are you giving me this? You gave me the faith in which I believe. You made it last to the end, and now you give me a reward? So how is your perception of yourself? Is it realistic? Are there moments in our lives when we're so busy congratulating ourselves or receiving praise from others, even when praise is due, that we forget to acknowledge the grace of God in our lives? God doesn't owe us anything. But every gift, every good gift comes from him because he is a good father and a gracious God. And finally, let's look at pride's remedy. Going back to 1 Peter chapter 5, it says in verses 5 to 6, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards each other. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 
And then in James chapter 4, verse 10, it says, to humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. So there's something here about being humble before God and being humble towards each other. When Peter says to clothe yourselves with humility, it literally means to put on the apron of humility, to put on the apron of humility. And no doubt when he writes this, he's thinking of the time during the Last Supper when Jesus takes off his robe, puts on an apron, and washes his disciples' feet. At that time, Jesus knew the end of his life was coming, and he knew that it was going to end with betrayal and abandonment, that it was going to end with deep humiliation and excruciating physical pain, as well as the spiritual pain of bearing the sins of the world all on himself. If there was ever a time for Jesus to be thinking of himself rather than others, to turn inwards, to feel sorry for himself. That was it. But there he was, about to face the most horrific and terrifying thing that anyone has and ever will face. And whilst he knew that was coming, his mind wasn't on himself, but it was on the disciples. And when Jesus was nailed onto that cross, literally bleeding out, suffocating, gasping for breath, He he was thinking of you. He was thinking of me. That's what humility looks like. To help us further understand uh, what humility is, Tim Keller puts it like this. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. We've already looked at how pride can be thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, But what does it mean to say that humility is not thinking less of ourselves? It means being humble doesn't mean we put ourselves down. Humility is not self-deprecation, self-belittlement, or excessive modesty. Sometimes Chinese parents can be a really good example of this. Someone might say to them, your child is really smart and talented and really good at the piano and all the sorts of stuff that Chinese people are supposed to be good at that I'm not. And the parent says, no, they're okay. They're not really that good. They're all right. But then deep down inside, they're like, yeah, my child's the best because I brought them up. You see, what excessive modesty is, is pride in disguise. It's a false humility. It's just a different way of being arrogant. I'm sure some of you have witnessed false humility coming from Christians when someone is praised for something and they say, it wasn't me, it was God. Hey, uh, you did a great job with leading worship today, thank you. Don't thank me, it was all God. Uh, one response to that that I recently heard was someone saying, well, it was, it was good, but it wasn't that good, because if it was God, it would have been way better. Sometimes when we receive a compliment, all we need to say is thank you. So we need to understand that when it says in Romans 12, 3, that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but with sober judgment. Sober judgment doesn't mean we should 
we should think less of ourselves. Sober judgment doesn't mean we put ourselves down. Now, there are, of course, some people who really do think very little of themselves, and they may have a preoccupation with their flaws and and, and their negative qualities. But we need to understand that self-pity is yet another way of being self-absorbed, but it's just done in a negative way. Because whenever we allow ourselves to wallow in self-pity, we become obsessed with ourselves as a victim. Sometimes we can just be so hard on ourselves, can't we? We beat ourselves up and we think that what we've done is beyond forgiveness. But it actually requires a lot of pride for someone to think that because to do so they need to believe that their sin is too much for God's grace. But we know that that's not true because we know that where where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. There are times when humility might just mean being able to forgive ourselves. So on one hand, pride can look like having an inflated self-evaluation where a person thinks too highly of themselves. But on the other hand, when a person thinks less of themselves or too little of themselves, though that might appear to be the opposite, that isn't humility. It's still pride. Because ultimately, it's not about how we think of ourselves, but it's how much we think of ourselves. It's not how we think of ourselves, it's how much we think of ourselves. We can be obsessed with our success, we can be obsessed with our failures. Both have an unhealthy focus on the self. I think Philip Brooks sums it up beautifully when he says this, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness greatness is. It's to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatest greatness is. It's having an accurate perception of yourself. It's about having the right perspective So it's not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself less. There's something about humility that has to do with self-forgetfulness. And by that, I don't mean self-neglect or not thinking about ourselves at all. In all of this, self-care is a given and self-reflection is of value because it draws us closer to God. In fact, St. Augustine said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Rather, what's meant by self-forgetfulness is the forgetfulness of our ego and self-importance, a forgetfulness from our self-absorption. What do people think of me? Did I make a good impression? How do I look? How did I sound in that conversation? and then just spending so much time being consumed about these things. Because a person who is truly humble is one who rarely thinks about themselves. And there's something beautiful about that, because when we turn our eyes away from ourselves, we can turn our eyes towards Jesus. We can turn our eyes towards other people. 
The self-forgetfulness of humility brings about a freedom from self-absorption, which allows us to connect and relate more deeply with God and with others. The self-forgetfulness of humility frees us from any desire to elevate or exalt ourselves. It liberates us from pride's endless demands for more. It rescues us from the need to impress and people-please, meaning we no longer need to be a slave to the opinions of others, and we don't need to exist for the praise of people. Because when we, when we live for the praise and approval of people, we die by their rejection. Having humility means we don't need to care so much about what people think of us, and it means we don't need to care so much about what we think of ourselves sometimes, but what we might think of us. Instead, it helps us to hear what God is saying over us. It helps us to hear what God is saying over us. We get to hear him say, you are my joy. I take joy in you. I'll close with this. Brennan Manning used to tell of a story about a priest who was uh, on a walking tour of a parish And as he passes through, he sees a peasant kneeling by the roadside, praying. The priest was impressed and says to the man, you must be really close to God. The peasant looked up from his prayers and thought for a moment. And I love this part. He doesn't think about himself or what he has or what he's done in his life. He doesn't think about what other people might be thinking of him either. Instead, he simply smiles and said, yes. He's very fond of me. You must be very close to God. Yes, he's very fond of me. So as we examine ourselves now and over the next few weeks, there may be parts of us that we might find hard to accept. But remember that God accepts us just as we are, and he says, come. In all of us, there are parts that are broken, but there are also parts of us that are whole. There are parts of us that are healed, but also parts of us that need healing. There are parts that may have been brought into the light, but also parts that may still be hiding in darkness. But because of what Jesus has done, he invites us to come to him just as we are, and all the parts are welcome. Amen.